The more rounds um, in that shotgun, the perhaps the more likely you are to hit that clay pigeon, right? Cast and, a wide net. Yeah, cast a wide net, yeah. And, and so, yeah, criticism is often made of some VC firms that they just throw money anywhere uh, that it can land. And if one in a hundred of those startups work out, then, uh, then you know, the fund return. Mm -hmm. Hello, everyone. And thanks for tuning into another episode of the Bricks and Bytes podcast, your go-to for all things construction and property technology. On today's show, we have Luke Graham. Luke is the head of research at Pylabs. His background also includes the advisory of PropTech and real estate startups in Europe, Africa, and Australia. In this stimulating episode, we discuss biases in the world of investing, origins of the venture capital business globally, roles of social science in the VC world, current economic environment, and many, many more. If you're enjoying our podcast, please check us out on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you enjoyed, please leave us the review. This helps us to get more amazing guests to give you guys the best and most informative content on technology in the built world. And shout out to our sponsor Beta. If you want to connect with some of the biggest players in the construction tech world, including tier one building contractors, some of the biggest construction tech companies, investors and advisors, check them out by visiting www.d-beta.com and this is www.the-beta.com You are listening to Bricks and Bytes podcast where we take you on a journey in construction, technology and business. All right, let's get this episode started. Luke, so researcher at Pylabs, yes, guest lecturer at Said Business School, and a kind of newish podcast host. Yeah, yeah, very fresh, very fresh podcast. <laughs> so, and today you're going to be on the receiving end. Yeah. So, so uh, switch at the tables. Roll reversal. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> cool. Like I'm getting sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Last time we came here, it was really hot, and I think they had aircon on, but yeah, it's all uh, good. It's, it's nice and beautiful and cold in here. <laughs> All right. So Luke, yeah, research. So interesting. So how did you get into full-time research? Yeah. So I, I guess um, in some ways there's like a fun romantic story behind this, right? So, um, so in school, um, I, you know, as many kids are, didn't take to the sort of regimental structure of sitting on my backside for six hours a day and ingesting you know, information as passionately or as dispassionately as it was being delivered, you know, depending on which teacher it was or whatever. Um, but I was a very curious person. And so a lot of my learning in my life ended up being self-directed. And, you know, I started asking particular questions that I think in a number of cases hadn't been asked too often before. And so that kind of reinforced itself over time. My first six years as an adult uh, were actually in the military, but you know, I did a lot of research while I was there on the way that people interacted with each other and behavior, you know, the way that power structures worked and all those sorts of things. Um, but there was always a strong real estate kind of um, presence in my mind based on my kind of family background and real estate being seen as like this, you know, home ownership and real estate investment being seen as this kind of um, vehicle for social mobility, say. And so that combination was made after I left the military and, uh, and you know, I was always kind of tinkering and playing around with different research methods and things like that and yeah again it just kind of reinforced itself over time and yeah that's how you got into it so uh military i say it's because it's 
kind of interesting. You're from Australia, right? Yeah. Was it Australian military yeah. you were in? Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Something you don't really hear of that much. I don't know if it's because we're in like uh, the UK and like the big armies like UK, Europe, US. Australia is, tends to say kind of quiet to be the rest of the world. For, so fun fact, yeah. So a lot of people say that. One bit of stick I get a little bit over here is, uh, so what were you doing in the Navy? Chasing sharks in the <laughs> yeah. or something like that. Surfing. Um, yeah. <laughs> but no, fun fact, uh, the Aussie military, you know, you can level this as a criticism or praise depending on where your ideas sit. But uh, the Australian military is known um, as the military that's been most active in American um, uh, in American conflicts over the last hundred years. And uh, and we actually had one of the highest casualty rates per capita in, uh, in the First World War. So virtually everyone in my family background served. Australia was very active in Vietnam by virtue of proximity. And, uh, and our Prime Minister, John Howard, um, he, was, uh, he was pretty tight with George Bush during the war in Iraq and stuff like that. So Australia, okay. and yeah, very, very active. Uh, again, some may criticize too active sometimes in global conflict. Yeah. Yeah. Hey. Um, and so obviously that le- leads you to where you are today, um, which is research. Are you head of, head of research? Head of research. At Pilab. So um, what, what does like, what does that entail? What does that mean? Yeah, it's, um, it's an unconventional role. Uh, and that's what I love probably the most about it actually is um, what one criticism that some people make of the venture capital sector is that uh, some players say in the industry um, adopt what's called a spray and pray approach, right? Um, and you can think about this, you know, in the way that a shotgun works, you know, for anyone who shoots play, clay pigeons or something like that. The more rounds um, in that shotgun, the, perhaps the more likely you are to hit that clay pigeon, right? Cast and, a wide net. Yeah, cast a wide net. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, criticism is often made of some VC firms that they just throw money anywhere uh, that it can land. And if one in a hundred of those startups work out, then, uh, then you know, the fund returns, mm-hmm. right? It achieves its return. Yeah, this is a common analogy that you hear. Yeah. Now, um, now our CEO, to his credit, Faisal Bhatt, uh, when he started Pylabs back in 2015, um, he didn't see it that way. He, d- he didn't want to execute um, VC in that way. And, you know, he was specializing in the built world, like prop tech, construction tech, you know, mobility, all these sorts of things. And he said, okay, well, instead of this, you know, sort of spray and pray approach, I'm going to focus heavily on like having research backed um, investment. And so one thing that's repeated quite a lot at Pylabs is that we research what we invest in and we invest in what we research in. And so my role, essentially, if you think about the investors in the company, who is probably the most familiar type of job in a VC, their job is to be there interacting with the startups like the grind on the coal face every day working with um, startups and deciding who to invest in and why and managing the portfolio, things like that. You could say they're very close to the elephant, right? They're standing right mm-hmm. to the elephant. Yeah. My job essentially is to be that person who is uh, several feet back and is able to sort of look at the whole sort of picture and you know inform the investment team and also inform our limited partners on key trends emerging um you know all those sorts of things things that we we'd like to be looking at mm-hmm. got it and and so is so i guess you've taken more of a uh, i know due diligence as a word comes up quite a bit in the vc world mm. but you're taking more of a diligent approach to investing as opposed to like the spray and prayer i guess with the research role yeah, yeah. So, so I guess, um, I guess one way of framing it, um, so diligent would be one, uh, you know. But our DD and our investment team is very comprehensive. Like where our our investment team's due diligence is known as being very thorough, mm-hmm. um, but uh, perhaps strategic. We uh, we ha- also have that strategic lens on on how things are interacting with the real estate sector, and yeah, yeah, got it. And so, what does what like if you're a startup, say, um, what 
kind of research are you doing to 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 um to say like okay yeah this is a viable investment for us yeah so so on what you would refer to as the micro side like uh doing dd on a specific startup you know where we have a few key sort of investment criteria um that doesn't necessarily discern a good from a bad startup necessarily but just one that's aligned with our uh, approach versus those who aren't and so you know uh one key objective um that our ceo often frames is like you know uh globally minded ceos like you know like how can this idea like sort of spread and rather than necessarily localized solutions, which could be great businesses, um, just again, don't don't fit our thesis. Um, others are like around, okay, what are some of the key disruptive emerging trends um, that are either helping the built world or in some way uh, are going is going to fundamentally shift the way that we interact with it. And so as one example of that, um, that, you know, I was mentioning off air just a moment ago was that, uh, you know, about 15 months, 18 months ago now, I spent three months just completely immersed in, uh, in everything, virtual reality, metaverse, spatial computing, whatever phrase you want to use, um, just to sort of really get deep on what the kind of challenges are or opportunities are from these sorts of technologies, whether you believe in the phrase metaverse or not, these technologies are around and more have been coming. Obviously, we've heard from Apple recently. Um, how does that affect mm -hmm. our sector? How does AI, you know, everyone's talking about ChatGPT. Well, yeah. How does that affect the way we work? Things like that. Yeah, yeah I see you got it. And this, how much of it is kind of speculative, if that makes sense? Because like, yeah. obviously, you know, everyone now is trying to predict the future with the release of AI technology and stuff. And we are, we all, I love to ask people this question and some, I ask some people and they're like, I don't really want to say because oh. I'm trying to tell the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a great question. Um, and you know, there, uh, I remember someone I was chatting with a while ago was like, when I was explaining to them what I do, they were like, Oh, so you're a futurist. And I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I try not, I try not to. Not yet. <laughs> to, I write a lot. So, uh, so, you know, I, I think sometimes that um that job title is kind of associated with a lot of talking and not much researching um but essentially yeah you could say anything is speculative that is looking forward right mm -hmm. so you could make the argument that if you're uh, you know if somebody listening right now works in real estate investment as an example value add or something like that um or they're even in construction i know you know um you guys bricks and bars have a, a construction background a construction tech background mm -hmm. um you could say any like, okay, we're building this mixed use development and we expect based on these demographic criteria and the research that's been done in this area that, uh, that this is the most appropriate building to put here. That is arguably speculative, right? Um, it may be more likely to eventuate than uh, somebody completely pulling something random out of thin air. Uh, but naturally, I would say my whole career, whether it's been in property technology, innovation broadly, or even conventional, the real, conventional real estate sector, arguably is all, there's always a bit of speculation there. Mm -hmm. The idea is for it to be informed speculation and, and to have some like real sort of, um, how would you put it, um, like some rationale behind it. Mm -hmm, got it. Yeah. And on your uh, journey today into your position now, what are some of, maybe just one or two key lessons that you've uh, learned or something that sticks with you that comes to mind straight away 
Yeah. So, um, so my favorite, and it might go back to why I became a researcher in the first place, that kind of contrarian sort of mindset. Um, one thing that I, I, I really learned from collaborating with some extremely intelligent people, some of the smartest people around, you know, um, is that as exceptional anybody can be, um, one thing I've found in the research community is that nobody is immune from dogma right and from bias and so one thing i try to do and of course i imagine most researchers would probably say that they try to do is removing that subjective bias from their work mm -hmm. um but one thing i found as kind of i you know came into sort of more intense communities you might say in in the world of research is that um that can exist at every level you know uh and and so it always needs to be managed and mitigated and i guess another one is that i think unfortunately in some cases in the world of research, and this is quite endemic in, in the world of the built world and prop tech and construction tech and those sorts of things, sometimes headline grabbing um, heuristics uh, get more attention than deep thought considered research. And that uh, serves as a, what you call a perverse incentive. And so, you know, the metaverse was probably my favorite example of this recently. So many people have wasted so much time debating what that word means <laughs> rather than thinking about like the technologies and, and the trends emerging and all those sorts of things. I was like, okay, who cares about the word, yeah, yeah. right? Okay, I, I get that it, there's relevance and value of having a proper definition, but like, let's give that 5% of our time and allow the other 95% for like actual deep considered research on, on what this means for us. Mm -hmm, cool. And on biases, any, just this is actually a really personal, like a, a pers personally quite curious subject of mine because I've been reading a lot about um, like irrational thinking and, and emotional emotional reactions to things. And obviously part of that is the biases that we have. Mm. Any, um, any ways or strategies perhaps that someone can remove the biases from their brain when they're perhaps looking at yes. investment or? Yes, I'll, I'll tell you what one of my favorite ones um, is. So there's a famous uh, public intellectual, I think you call them. Um, he's a professor over in one of the American uh, Ivy Leagues. Very well known. I won't name him. I won't be mean. But um, <laughs> I'm curious. <laughs> but he's he's very ideological, right? Yeah. And so I, I don't rate him very highly as a researcher, despite how popular he is. He's got some very popular books. You've probably read one of his books. Um, okay. I'll tell you off air. Anyway, uh, the criticism I make of him is that when he shares and popularizes research, whether his or someone else's, I always think to myself, if that had the opposite finding, you would not be putting your name behind this so heavily. And so to me, the number one, the cardinal rule of anyone doing research is if this had the opposite finding, would I be as comfortable singing from the rooftops about it? And therefore, what vested interest do I have in the finding? And how has that applied to the way that I research this problem? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so like, because you're applying your biases the whole way through the research mm -hmm. process, whether you'll acknowledge it or not. And so when you get to that conclusion, what if it was the opposite? How would I react? Interesting. Would they have, given that people are so biased when they're doing this, do you think that they would find a way to like, if it was, if you did get the opposite outcome, you would find a way to kind of uh, spin it so it actually 
affirmed the outcome that you wanted or not really? Yeah, I, I, I think so. And I think one way that that's kind of played out, like I, I, I totally, you know, there are way smarter people who came up with this method than me. But if you even think of one of the kind of research methods, there's something, uh, some people might get, uh, some people listening might get some, um, you know, flashbacks to their undergrad, you know, when I talk about this, but there's in statistics and in research, there's something referred to as a null hypothesis. And so this is something that you're testing, an idea that you're testing. And so it's a way of doing research because if I say as an example, this table is orange, right? And for those listening and not watching, the table isn't, it's black. <laughs> but uh, but uh, if I say my null hypothesis is that this table is orange, I can then test that hypothesis and that's a research method, right? But it's designed essentially, if you don't approach this in the right way, it's designed for you to try and validate your own beliefs, Right. And so, you know, I, I think, again, like yeah. there, there's a lot to kind of making sure you're not just sitting there choosing variables to validate your beliefs, choosing hypotheses to validate your beliefs and all these sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. That must be kind of hard because I feel like you you do this research because you're trying to prove like your for, your your uh, your assumption or hypothesis or whatever. So when you do something, it actually is coming against what you say. It must be a little bit of an ego hit. Like, uh, yeah, that wasn't what I wanted. It's an ego hit, and it hurts. And it's happened to me in in the social sciences before um, on on you know some more contentious topics. Sometimes I'm right, and sometimes you know it turns out that my belief isn't you know exactly perfect. Not often. <laughs> but yeah that's how it is and you know who was good at this Stephen Hawking I'm not sure if this is true or if it was just um, sensationalized in a film but uh, I believe his, master, his PhD thesis disproved his master's thesis mm. I believe someone can fact check me on that you know drop it in the comments if I'm wrong about that but I believe that's what happened okay interesting I'm going to check that one out hmm. Stephen Hawking okay so, okay so let's move on to a bit more about venture capital and just Starting with the basics, like how does um, venture capital work? Like, give, if you could give us a kind of basic for dummies explanation. Yeah, so so forgive me for uh, for the history references, but I, I love to frame things through history, right? I think it adds a lot of helpful context. VC in its current form, in in the way that we recognise it today, emerged after the Second World War. Right. What happened, unfortunately, when war takes place, that tends to be a very innovative period of time because people are in such heavy competition, they innovate more intensively. Right. Um, we see that in movies all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so the end of the Second World War, we enter the nuclear age, all of these innovations, all of these technologies that were developed for military applications, all of a sudden had all these commercial uses. Right. Um, and so how are we going to fund all this stuff? There, there wasn't a conventional or an established way of funding all of these ideas, right? And so VC was born, right? And, uh, and obviously over in Silicon Valley, so named because a lot of the tech developed uh, was made of silicon, uh, we, we saw that world develop a lot and, you know, we've seen it you know, develop a lot in Europe and the UK over the last couple of decades, especially over, say, the last few years. Um, but essentially, the idea of venture capital, if I'm to put it in my version of a nutshell, would be that it's there to fund, for early stage VC at least, early stage ideas that would be hard to bootstrap. And by bootstrap, what I mean is it's not a conventionally commercial business where you can immediately start selling a product. So usually what that means is we're funding businesses with high fixed costs. Um, and low variable costs. So businesses which cost quite a bit to start, but then once they're going, you know, it's not as expensive to scale. That tends to be the type of business that's funded with the VC model. Yeah, okay, fine. And why, I don't know you've kind of answered the question already, but 
why do we need venture capital? So yeah, it's a great question, um, and I guess there's a few <clears throat> a few lenses to approach that from. The, one would be expertise. So the type of people who you know people who work in VC are funny characters, right? Um, because some of us are startup founders, exited entrepreneurs, and things like that. I, I started a company in my mid twenties um, and exited it in my late twenties, mm -hmm. and uh, and went deeper into my research journey. Um, there's a lot of ex-tech entrepreneurs in VC, naturally. There's also a lot of MBA types um, in VC. Uh, and there's a lot of, you would say, super specialists, a lot of PhDs that heavily specialize in the area that they're investing in. And so um, why do we need VC? I would say because I would say historically, um, conventional forms of investment don't have the expertise to invest in the type of disruptive and nascent technology that's involved in, in VC investment. Yeah, good answer. Yeah, like you, you just got the community and network of people in a venture capitalist yeah. that can help actually drive innovation and the business that they're investing in rather than just give them a load of money. It's like, there you go, pay us our interest. We'll see you soon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's much more than just a financial relationship. You know, and not just that, but in some ways you could say that we are a, a slight, like you could frame it as we aggregate the capital as well. So like at Pylabs, as an example, we have limited, what's called limited partners, which are our investors. Um, and quite a number of those are companies in the construction real estate sector, some are not. Mm. Um, but if you were to, if you're a prop tech startup or a construction tech startup, and you're sourcing all of your money from one real estate company who is your investor, that investor in some ways, they might not act this out, but they have that underlying incentive for you to not take your product to their competitors. They want that to be in-house. That affects your scalability. It can affect the value of the company, all those sorts of things. Again, not always that black and white, but, um, but it is a factor to take into account. We can be one step removed from that. And so we're kind of this intermediary, which means that you're not married to one customer who also happens to be an investor. Yeah, got it. And okay, rude question time. So what role does, what, what impact does social science, I know you love a bit of social science. And as we were discussing before, I learned that social science is a very broad umbrella. So now I'm reading this question, I'm thinking there's probably an unlimited or infinite number of answers that you could give here, but yeah. interested in your interpretation of it. Yeah. What role does um, social science have in, in the venture capital world? Yeah, so so I've I've constrained my um, research and academic journey mostly to the social sciences. Um, with the depending on your opinion on where um, psychology sits, whether that's a science or a social science, a hard science or a social science. <laughs> um, I studied psychology mostly on the social side of it to to get a better understanding of change and innovation and those sorts of things, but. Um, social science, very broad church. It takes into um, it takes economics, um, it takes sociology, real estate valuation is even considered um, by many as part of the social sciences. As an example, if you're studying real estate economics, the way that um, buildings accrue in value or don't, all those sorts of things. Um, the the relevance of it in the world of venture is if you think of um, any disruptive technology. Essentially, what you're looking at is fundamental behavior change or incremental behavior change. It's either one or the other, right? Um, in order for this innovation to work, there's required behavioral change, right? That means from, you mean from like the side of the person that's using the technology? People who are using it, people who are not going to use it, but have some sort of stake in its 
proliferation. So ChatGPT, as an example, in its current form, some might be able to argue is useless if nobody actually jumps online and uses it. So mm -hmm. behavior change involved. I see here. There's also um, major impacts. There's ramifications of all of these technologies. What are the um, what are the kind of how would you frame this, um, second order effects of these technologies coming out. And so a lot of the methods deployed in social science, like things like contagion, things like, you know, um, one of the favorites in the venture community is the power law. So exponential growth, you know, things like this, all these types of frameworks and methods uh, are, are directly relevant then to, to the way that innovation spread, the way that they're adopted, the way that attitudes are formed around them. You know, why are people so, why are there a lot of people who are skeptical of 15 minute cities, right? Why are there people who are very skeptical of vaccines? Why, why are there groups who have views about certain innovations um, that, are, that are unfavorable, right? How can we acknowledge that, identify that, uh, accept uh, responsibility in some of those and, uh, and kind of move forward with um, something that works for everybody, um, something that uh, is, is best informed to the public, all these sorts of things, right? This all comes into play in the social sciences. Right. The tech itself often developed in the hard sciences, but it's proliferation in the social sciences. Got it. And so interesting. Do you when you're doing your research, do you consider like psychological behavior of people in that? Maybe it's not. It's quite simple. But um, are you like, no, this this psychologically does not make sense. Therefore, it's, it's not a good investment. Maybe not so black and white. Uh, but yeah, I definitely deploy psychology quite a lot. Um, I guess one hallmark of my writing, um, if anyone was to check out a paper and uh, without checking the authors and, and be able to tell if it was me or not, is probably the injection of a bit of psychology. And so as an example, this is very convenient prop, uh, but uh, yeah, I gifted to you one of my papers before. <laughs> um, my latest one is on fractionalization, a piece of the action um, co-authored with Andrew Borman, Jimmy Gia. And, uh, and so we look at the fractional ownership of real estate and other, um, other uh, real assets, right? And where does psychology come into that? Well, you've got things like behavior of landlords as an example. So that in the UK, there's a big problem around what's referred to as amateur landlords, right? Um, and lack of professionalism, under maintenance of homes, all those sorts of things, but also investor behavior um, around uh, unsophisticated investors and, and what's referred to as noise traders, all these sorts of things. How could that have an impact on real estate if a wider or larger subset of real estate was fractionally owned and therefore accessible to far more people? So it sounds like a great thing, democratization. But as we know from outside of real estate, that word democratization, the word democracy, one downside is that um, people you might think have a bad idea or don't do things properly get an equal input that you do, right? So behavior comes into that as well. So behavior always comes into um, into innovation. Okay. Mm -hmm. And maybe I should say this one for off topic, but can you share your favorite psychological is the word concept or theory? Yeah, concept theory. Um, that's tough. I, I mean, um, your your favorite is probably aligned with mine. So the one that kind of got me into it um, was essentially cognitive psychology. Cognitive psychology was the first part of the discipline that I studied, and it's around. Uh, you know, I mean, I guess it kind of you know the names on the tin 
I think that's the phrase. But, Something uh, like that. Yourself. That's exactly Something what it says on the tin. No. Yes. <laughs> but, um, but it's essentially like how we perceive things differently. So a really fun fact, right? We're, we're sitting around. Um, I can see on the screen that the curtains look quite dark, but to me, they're blue, a really dark navy blue. And there's a bit of green on the wall off screen. Actually, there's green against the um, screen here on your logo. So um, blue and green um, in an image elicit a different psychological response to them not being in that image, especially if it's representing water and green space. So when we talk about green space being in offices and your home and all those sorts of things, there's a massive, it's not just air quality. It's actually the amount of air quality is quite negligible. Like yeah. one plant doesn't actually give, give off that great. You need a jungle inside uh -huh. if you're going to get air quality in, indoors. But what it does do is there's a massive psychological effect of just that sitting there and that being in that space. So every space in my home, as an example, has green in it, a lot of green. Okay. Um, and it's because it helps me focus, concentrate, all these sorts of things. So cognitive psych, very closely related to what you were talking about with biases. That that to me is like, that's where the magic is. That's, that's what I love I mean. it. Okay, cool. Um, and just generally speaking, it, it, like where venture capitalism is at the moment, uh, this is actually a question from Martin. And I will have to say, he said, he said, is there still dry powder? I had to Google quickly before I came here what he meant by dry powder. And I think it means excess money available that people can just throw things. So yeah, given that where we are now, sort of downturning, you can correct me if you don't agree, but it feels like we're on, you know, slowing down slightly. Inflation's increasing, interest rates, da-da-da-da-da. Mm. Is there still dry powder? Yes. So so dry powder for those um, listening who yeah, who aren't completely familiar with that phrase, dry powder is another historical and military reference. So <laughs> all the perfect words for nice. this conversation. Dry powder comes naturally from uh, on a on an old school warship that had cannons. Dry powder was your gunpowder that was sitting there to the side and not currently being used in the rounds on a cannon. So it's uh, yeah, what you yeah. have left to shoot your cannons. And so the way that applies, not just in venture capital, but in private equity and any funds type structure, is that um, it dry powder is the money that you've raised, but that you haven't yet invested, right? So what you kind of have in your back pocket, you might call it. And, um, and so what hit headlines a lot over the last year or two is that VCs went out there and raised a lot of money, um, but we hadn't yet deployed it. We hadn't invested it in startups, right? Uh, and so we had like a record amount of dry powder, say 12 months ago, something like mm. that. Now, two interesting things have happened since then. Obviously, we've had this global economic shakedown and venture is never immune to that. Venture gets hit by that just the same as public markets do and the real estate sector and all those sorts of things. Um, but interestingly, um, interestingly, some VCs have stepped back and said, we're not investing as much and maybe that's the appropriate thing to do in their sector. But, um, but then other VCs have kind of said, well, we're, we're continuing our strategy because despite some of the economic shakedown that's happening right now, the investments we're making in these companies, we expect to see um, what's called their runway, the amount, that that the amount of time that that money funds for them doing, mm -hmm. uh, developing their products and building their company outlives this economic shakedown. And the problem that that company is solving is so relevant to now and the future that like this kind of issue, these current economic troubles um, aren't as relevant for these types of investments. So a big part of this is your timeline. It'll vary from company to company. It'll vary from investor to investor, all those sorts of things. But to, to answer the direct question about dry powder, there's still a lot because Companies, VCs raised a lot before um, the economic headwinds emerged, but they haven't deployed it yet. So it's still sitting there, a lot of dry powder. So is it a matter of just holding on to it for now and seeing how it goes? 
For some, yeah. But, um, but you know, we, we just recently, um, a couple of weeks ago, um, published an article called In Five Charts While We're Bullish on European Construction Tech, right? And a lot of the issues that we spoke about in that article actually transcend a lot of these issues. So as an example, you know, a lot of the challenges framed um, in environmental sustainability of buildings, right? So you hear often, almost all the time, you hear people saying that um, buildings are responsible for 30% of energy consumption, 30% of GHG emissions mm -hmm. worldwide, right? And that's mm -hmm. from the UN, I think 2019, one of their reports. Now, that issue doesn't go away because of inflation, right? And the governments haven't stepped back their environmental standards because of inflation. So that's persisting. And so even though we saw, you know, um, share markets take a hit, even though we saw GDP in many countries take a hit, um, you know, economic slowdown, we've spoken to inflation, all this sort of stuff. We've seen all these things. Something that you might find quite fascinating is that in 2022, right, European construction tech had their second highest year of investment behind 2021. Mm -hmm. Now, sure, it was down from 21, but VC investment does do this, right? It does bounce around a bit. So 22, despite being a rough year, for European construction tech was a busy, busy year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, got it. Um, okay, so in terms of venture capital in the built environment generally is how, I don't know if you're familiar with like VC in the say the financial sector, whatever it might be. FinTech and the like. Yeah. yeah. Is it, how does someone get involved with venture capital in the built, built environment and is it is it to you based on like what you can see is it a is it like a it's obviously strong that there's viable businesses but is there better opportunities in other industries you think it's a great question um why did i end up in vc in the built world i guess would be a way for me to sort of look at that um i you know have as i said to you before an inclination towards disrupt disruption and you know those sorts of things and so i naturally have I guess what you would say would be the temperament for for venture and for disruptive tech and startups and things like that. But how how have I seen other people come into it as well? There's a really interesting dichotomy here, right, with um, VC in the built world. And I think, yeah, if you look at it this way, one is that experience in the industry is useful because it helps you um, when you're looking at startups identify whether this is actually something that's useful. Right, that's something um, that say project managers are actually going to use, yeah. or that people on a construction site will use, something like that. Then, on the other hand, there's the argument that being an outsider means that you see things that people like us may not see because we've we're spoiled goods because we've been in the sector and we're just part of the problem. Right. So there are two ways of framing that I think are really cool. Um, and so at Pylabs, as an example, we have a mixture. Right, so myself, uh, my colleague Levi, uh, our CEO Faisal, um, in different capacities, a number of us have a background in the real estate sector, entrepreneurially or in big corporate. Yep. Um, and then we've got other people, Hugo, as an example, um, who's uh, our principal. He's been in clean tech and he's been in engineering, but like you wouldn't call him a real estate person. He, you know, you would consider him to be a disruptive outsider. Yeah, got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Definitely one key insight we always get from this podcast is like in construction is so important to have actual knowledge of what is going on and really understand your um, people that are going to be using your product and what people are doing on the job site, should we say. Yeah. It's very difficult for people to come into construction tech and from an outside and think like, why is my product not working? Why is it so slow? It's a common thing. Um, yeah. So boots on the ground. And what kind of people, like, because obviously, so how VC works is obviously you guys have investors, which 
give you money. It's just called limited partners, right? Yeah, limited partners. Yeah. So, who are those people? Like, what what's their sort of profile? Yeah, so all sorts of different people kind of come into that world, some easier than others, um, and some for different reason than others. So, you know, you can kind of break investors into VC into several buckets, and it kind of determines what type of VC you are, right? So you have financial investors, naturally, um, and they're people who invest in you because they believe in you as somebody who can make them an X amount of return over X period or Y period of time, right? Like there's, you know, just naturally as any other type of investment works. And then you have these strategic investors. So people who benefit, it's almost um, as if they're they're investing in you because there are non-financial benefits um, to them being involved with your business. And that's a big part of research at Pylabs naturally is that, okay, if, if when we're partnering with real estate firms, uh, as an example, whether in the UK, Europe, or internationally overseas, you know we get a lot of interest um, from uh, from countries in the Middle East, which are getting more involved in the innovation side of things and want some of that, um, you know, academic sort of um, input as well to uh, to the sort of interventions that they're deploying in real estate and, and the built world. So, um, so the strategic return oftentimes can actually be more powerful than the financial return, right? For, for a lot of investors. So, w- what is it that being around startups, being around VCs who are interacting? Like, as an example, my colleagues in the investment team, they look at more than a thousand pitch decks every year and i can i could never believe it when they first told me that and so i went in and checked i was like ah that's just hyperbole <laughs> i look at a billion decks a year you know <laughs> i look at a billion pitch decks a year but um you know so a bit donald trump-esque you know <laughs> best president you know <laughs> but uh i i jumped into the uh, database and, and they were right yeah it's it's over a thousand pitch decks of, of startups that they review every year and and so that there's no beating that as far as like knowing what's going on in the market so partnering you know obviously it might sound a little bit like a sales pitch here but partnering with a vc if you're in the built world is i think the most powerful way even beyond the macro research that i do is the most powerful way of knowing what's coming through the barrel and most importantly if it's an early stage vc Right, someone investing in seed stage and Series A. If you're going way too later stage, everyone knows who the companies are anyway. Mm. Right, like if you invest in Zoopla, like we know what Zoopla is, right? Um, but uh, but you know, if you're going those seed stage, pre-seed stage companies, very embryonic coming through, you know, that's kind of where I think the magic is. That's something that really interests me and that I think is much more relevant for future gazing. Yeah, yeah, nice. Okay, on the subject of future, we were chatting earlier how, or yeah, I think you even mentioned it as well um, during the recording about how, was it a few, few months ago or maybe a year or so ago, you was heavily researching virtual reality, AR, metaverse. Researchers, we said, okay, well, if people are spending more time online and somebody owns that experience, whether it's a virtual plot of land or a website or whatever, then we can actually deploy real estate valuation methods and business valuation methods to actually valuing that piece of space, that virtual space. So there is ways of valuing it. Yeah, sure, it might not be worth 5 million pound, right? Or it's equivalent in Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency, but there is a value there. So how do we identify like anything useful to come from all of this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And is does that mean that you... The, the, are you saying there that you think that it's still relevant or are we on a hype? Are we, are we following another hype? Because you're saying these things blow up and then they kind of like slow down again. And, and just to, to like add to that, and you're talking about hype with GPT, I was just reading an article on the way here that for the first month ever, GPT usage has gone down. 
So right. ah. are we are we waiting for the next? I don't know. I think people yeah. are probably just fatigued by it or whatever. But yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's a great like double barrel question because okay. So on the one hand, if I talk about metaverse, let me come back to GPT, Chat GPT. But if I talk about the metaverse one first, yeah, sure. There are a whole bunch of metaverse platforms which didn't weren't going to work. They are always a silly idea. Right. Um, it was like, okay, this is cool and fun for five minutes, but it's, it, there's no real application there. Right. That was kind of foreseeable. And even though some people were debating about it, really, we all kind of knew, right? Like, as an example, uh, a worker is not going to be, I'm not going to pick on any particular platform, but like adults en masse are not going to be playing, say, a crypto version of Minecraft for eight hours a day and transacting a lot on that space, right? I personally don't see a world where something like that happens. Maybe for kids, and maybe you can monetize that with kids, but I don't see it in a professional context, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so people making that insinuation, I think that was always going to be silly. But on the other hand, we've made a few investments. Like one of our companies, um, Hyper, it's called, mm -hmm. is uh, augmented reality, not virtual. So um, it's like real with virtual elements overlaid. Um, and they help with indoor wayfinding, as an example, and, and, their, and their use cases have spread. And so it originally began with um, grocery stores. So I, I'm a perfect um, target customer for this. I, 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 like my brain doesn't work in in many of those spaces. I, you know, if I can't see the sun, then I can't navigate, right? Or, <laughs> I can navigate by the sun and stars, but, uh, but the no stars. But um, but anyway, so like navigating indoors, right, is a um, a really helpful use case for augmented reality. We have virtual reality training with a company we invested in called Moonhub. So they've, they've only grown. Like metaverse hype downturn for them, that didn't affect them because they had a real use case here and their user base has grown and grown. So we, I did a case study on one of their users where you know, a security company um, who did security of buildings, which is why it's relevant to the built world, um, cut costs um, on training their security staff by not having to do as many off-site training mm -hmm. simulations. They could do it all with a VR headset. Really relevant use case. Doesn't mean that it relies on people wearing VR headsets all day. It means people put a VR headset on once every couple of months or once every quarter or something like that and do half a day or a day of training that costs a literal fraction, like a tenth of the cost of doing offsite training and has the same level of results. Like those sorts of things, you don't have to worry about the hype cycle. Just don't use the word metaverse and you can run this, you know, business into, you know, into forever. Your point around GPT uh, is an interesting one. So chat GPT. Um, I personally, you know, I've used it. I think it's a useful tool. I consider it to be a search engine. I use it as a search engine who doesn't credit the uh, the originators of the um, intellectual property, uh, which as a writer, I don't like. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But a helpful search um, tool, which I then use to prompt me to go and look for other things. I personally believe, and some people may disagree with this, but I reckon I believe that I can tell when something's been written by GPT. Oh, yeah. I totally straight agree. Away. Mm -hmm. I that's definitely been written by ChatGPT. It's written by a disinterested 10th grader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can tell this is just it's just very cold. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was I said this on the previous podcast we had with Will. It's just like your eyes, or at least me, can now I can kind of see the patterns. And I don't know. We're just getting used to like identifying. Oh, this looks like a pattern of text that was written by GPT. Yes. Not even necessarily the words that are in there. Yep. It's just like obviously GPT. Yep. It's the cadence. It's the yeah. I don't know exactly how to perfectly frame it, but uh, when I read it, I go, oh, that's totally you know, AI generated. Yeah. Hyper sounds like an interesting uh, concept. I think 
would be super helpful when uh, the missus sends me to the shop to buy something and I'm like this down every single aisle, <laughs> like, where the hell is the kidney beans? Yeah, <laughs> looking into, you know, the top left and just, I don't know where I am. Or, you know, in your construction world, actually, one that I think that you'd find really interesting is Contilio as well. So they use like essentially 3D imaging to identify on a site where incorrect installations have taken place. Yeah. And so preventing rework. Yeah, yeah. So if you're if if you're familiar with them, mm -hmm. um, if not, uh, I'll definitely intro them to you. Yeah, that'd be cool. I appreciate that. Nice. Um, okay. So I would like to also talk to you about some of the papers you've released and what you can share. I mean, again, very broad question, but there will be obviously some things that stick with you when I ask this question. Is um some of the key insights about some of the research and pa even papers that you've more recently released? Yeah, yeah. So um so the first one that we did when I joined into Pylabs, which was probably around Pylabs, somewhere between fifth and tenth paper by that point. Um, was on environmental performance, ESG, things like that. ESG is naturally a massive topic. We're actually finishing off another ESG-related paper now that'll be, you know, um, really is sitting there in its form. We just need to have it published uh, around what, what what's being referred to by one of our portfolio companies, um, Mark LaPere, who's an academic at, uh, I believe, King's College, London. Um, ESG 2.0, right? Um, you know, framing like ESG wow. 1.0 was like this really well-intended, you know, phenomenon, say. But uh, the problem with it is that we had the emergence of greenwashing, right? So we had like, you know, oil companies doing ads with pretty trees and them being like, yeah, we believe in the future. You know, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. um, and plenty other examples, um, you know, uh, a really big issue around carbon offsets and saplings and, and forests that were never built and all those sorts of things. And so now what we're seeing is government really crack down on this, right? Because it's making them look bad. And so um, the way that Mark frames it is this ESG 2.0, which is the post greenwashing version of ESG and the post sustainability washing of ESG. So that's something I'm pretty excited about getting out there and, and sharing with everybody. And essentially we're looking at how you quantify um, non-financial metrics in a business, which is a big part of our, this company, OmniView, um, which Mark um, founded. Um, and then like, you know, um, you know, we've spoken a little bit about fractionalization, you know, something that really intrigued me about fractionalization is, you know, this, this dynamic, you know, that I kind of mentioned before around fantastic idea, like something that fascinates me is that some ideas are really so fantastic, but at, at the end of the day, they're really difficult to actually make work at mm -hmm. scale where you have a viable business model. Um, and so, you know, I saw that in some of the approaches to fractionalization, um, some fractionalization schemes are just going to really struggle to get off the ground. And they're what you might refer to as commoditized versions of fractionalization where you're buying a one ten thousandth share in a building. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's it's like tough to scale that because people are investing. One finding that we had, there was a particular um, platform overseas in a different country. I, I won't give too much away. But the calculation I did was that they uh, the average investment of every um, customer on their platform was the equivalent of about 150 pounds, right? So say approximately 200 USD, maybe 230. I don't know the exact exchange rate. Um, now, what's the management fee that you get from that level of investment? It's like literally in the single dollar amount, right? Or the single pound amount. And the problem with that is that there's no way of scaling that. How much did it cost to, uh, um, to acquire that consumer? If it costs you more than five pounds to acquire that consumer, 
you have a negative, like that, that's that's a negative equation mm-hmm. that you're better off without that customer. So that was a really interesting one. Yeah. On the other side, there's fantastic use cases of fractionalization as well. You know, like we did one case study of a business that we're related to um, called Crowd Property. Mike Bristow is the CEO there. And we did a Q&A with him of why they had so much success. And essentially what they did is that they opened up um, development finance to retail investors making small investments. So, you know, um, somebody, you know, on the street, if they have £100,000 um, total assets, they can put £10,000, you know, a fraction of their assets into financing and development and obvious naturally there's a different return profile for that type yeah. of asset that's usually not available to retail investors. Mm-hmm. Oh nice, I like it. Yeah. Um what could you say about green greenwashing? I'd keep this brief because I've got some more interesting questions. But what could you say about uh like human behavior and the fact that as soon as something becomes trendy, everyone's like, yeah, yeah. let's greenwash the hell out of this because we would like you say, we want to put pictures of trees and leaves in our adverts that we're selling oil. <laughs> well one thing I'd say about that is as I said before Trees being around uh, is nice for the head. Um, Good. Yeah, 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 yeah. So maybe that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. They're just trying to make us all feel at ease. Yeah, um, yeah I, I think greenwashing is fascinating. There's a uh, a mentor and colleague um, who is a absolute guru on sustainability. A guy by the name of Jimmy G. Uh, he's polishing off his PhD up at Oxford at the moment, and uh, he lectures, you know, at Oxford and overseas at American universities and all these sorts of things. He's he's the real deal, right? And, uh, and one thing that he said to me, which I found really interesting, is that he said, you know, um, greenwashing isn't as prevalent as erroneous accusations of greenwashing. So there's almost the greenwashing, greenwashing. Yeah, you know, okay, I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Like Inception, uh-huh. Leo DiCaprio. <laughs> um, and so I am mindful of that as well. I am mindful of the fact that people just naturally get accused of greenwashing. I remember I met a student once, uh, again, up at Oxford, who, um, who said to me, um, uh, corporate... Pro- uh, companies profiting um, from sustainability are greenwashing. And I was like, well, I don't know if I agree with that because if they're making an improvement, then I think the profit incentive is actually a very powerful motive. Mm, yeah, And that's how it's working in the real estate sector. Like some work that we've been doing is on, uh, and we've been brainstorming a little bit of this with the Royal Institute of Child Despairs uh, across the river from us mm-hmm. right now um, in London. Um, is how can value be affected by environmental sustainability? And it's pretty serious because you have energy performance for starters and and energy is more expensive. That's a big part of what we're talking about before of inflation. Um, And you also have choice of your tenants. Your occupiers, especially big corporates, want to be seen as being sustainable. So they're going to prefer more sustainable buildings. So now there is actually profit incentive. And I think that's a really cool non-greenwashing version of getting profit from being more environmentally sustainable. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds good. All right, cool. So away from the whole world of venture and whatnot is... Your work at Saeed Business School, Saeed? Saeed. Orphic Saeed. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And also, how important is it to to be, apart from the prestige that comes with it, an, an owner of an MBA these days? <laughs> yeah, so my relationship with Oxford began um, about four or five years ago now, I think it was. Um, I was originally an exchange student in history, believe it or not, um, in business history, uh, corporate history, uh, economic history. Oh, you've done a lot. Every every time uh, something else comes out, I'm like, <laughs> I need to ask you about this. <laughs> the trick is to do more than one thing at once. One of my colleagues said this to me. She's like, how old are you? And I was like, oh, I just, I just squeezed a couple of things into a, you know, into an individual situation. So I accumulate experiences more quickly. But yeah, originally it was business history up there. Fantastic professor, Chris McKenna. Love him. Um, he loves what he does. 
And uh, so I did that and I fell in love. I was studying at another university at the time, an Australian university actually um, by distance from here. And, um, and I said, oh, you know what? I'm going to come over and I'm going to do the uh, executive MBA at Oxford and um, if I can get in. And I had the privilege of getting in. And, um, and yeah, fascinating experience, but uh, really soon into it, COVID hit. Mm-hmm. Just so happened while I was there that I was doing an assignment that um, I needed some real estate data for. And that's how I was introduced to the team at the Future of Real Estate Initiative there at Oxford, who's run by um, or was run by Andrew Baum, Professor Andrew Baum. And uh, started on some research with them on um, automated valuation models and things like that. And that kind of snowballed, ended up working with them. And, uh, and now in my capacity of head of research at Pylabs, what I also do is I, I lecture um, on a couple of different uh, tech and real estate oriented subjects up there. So yeah, if you're doing your MBA and you're learning about real estate and tech at Oxford, um, yeah, you have the, have the pleasure of, uh, of hanging out with me for a few hours and it's great because, you know, it's, it's good to be tapped into the academic world. Um, mm. MBAs, to answer that second part of your question, um, I think I no doubt it's crazy expensive. Yeah. And opportunity cost-wise, it's even more expensive because I liquidated investments to, to be able to afford that program. Um, and I was in a fortunate position to have had them in yeah. the first place. But all in all, the um, opportunity cost of that MBA is somewhere around, say, 300 pounds, 300 pounds, 300,000 pounds. Um, so it's more than just the actual cost because it's what you're not spending. Yeah, yeah. So your big question for anyone who's thinking about MBAs, especially at the big expensive schools, is um, is what's what's your planned ROI on it? What's your return on investment? And I got to say, great for connections. Some of my closest friends are alum that I studied with, good mates that I talk to virtually every day still. Um, you know, the, uh, the witness at my wedding during COVID when my wife and I eloped in a registry office in London, that was one of my classmates, you know, um, so great friends, great connections. Yeah. We are always doing innovative stuff with, there have been a whole bunch of startups that have come out of our class, many of them successful, a fund, an investment fund that's, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm a believer, but I know a lot of people aren't. Yeah, yeah, fine. Yeah, no, it's good to get the balance argument. Okay. And tell us a little bit more about your podcast. Yeah, so um, so you know, on the research theme and on the sort of intellectual curiosity theme, um, one thing I was realizing is that you know, throughout my you know decade or decade plus research journey, I was coming into, I was interacting with you might say a whole bunch of really intelligent people with really insightful ideas um, that were very good at writing this out in academic papers and all these sorts of things. But I always said to myself, wow, these papers, they're so transformational, but um, but there wasn't much uh, alternative media output of this work, of this research, right? Um, unless you get published in like Science Magazine yeah. or something like that. And so the more and more of these people that I was meeting over time in, in areas of the social sciences that intersected um, with the built world and all these sorts of things, I was like, you know what, I'm going to do, you know, similar to what you guys are doing here. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to chat with these people for 40 to 60 minutes. I'm going to see what insights I can get from them for these papers, which then make it directly applicable to, to the sector, to the private sector, without people having to wait to go through a uni degree and to find this out 15 years later. So my whole goal there with Thinkers and Doers, it's called the Thinkers and do us podcast check it out youtube and uh an apple podcast and uh, the same with you guys on most podcast platforms mm-hmm. um the objective there was really to to make it accessible for a much wider sort of audience to sort of go this is some of the cutting edge sort of research that's being done and and you know how it's relevant to you mm-hmm. and you've had some pretty cool guests on there i noticed um former navy seal 
Yes, yes. So there's thinkers and doers. So thinkers is the academic side. I got and it. And doers are the great stories from people you may not have heard of. And and the Navy SEAL, John Wilson, classmate of mine at Oxford, there you go. example. Yeah. That's how I met him. Um, one of those amazing, like, impressive people that, like, their you know, stories like, are always awesome. got to get you on. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was great. Yeah, yeah, nice. Okay, awesome. Sounds good. All right, okay. So I think we maybe have, like, a few more minutes to do something a little bit um wacky okay so on this on this piece two pieces of paper here i went into chat gpt i actually get bored of like saying the word now and, and <laughs> like talking about it, i try to use a different word too, there is no different <laughs> word, <you know. laughs> any ideas appreciate um i asked it for some questions that are like some related to construction tech off topic and some just totally random so like you have questions one to fifty no one to 20 which are construction tech and then 20 to 40 which are just random so let's pick yeah. one from one to 20 and then we'll go for yeah. one from 20 to 40 love it love it let's do it go uh pick a number oh me pick a number yeah okay one to 20 and then 20 to 40 right? yeah okay so for the first number i'm going to pick is um let's go for 14 one four <laughs> Okay, it's quite a good one. Which fictional character do you think would make a great construction tech entrepreneur and why? Oh my god. Wow, this I think you might need some thinking time for this. Do you get to answer this too? Oh, I might need your prompting for uh, uh, fictional character. Oh yes, okay. Um not Chuck Bass from Gossip Girl. He's too old school. Do you do you ever watch that show? The uh, Legacy of My Father. No. <laughs> he he uh, he inherited a real estate company from his dad, I think. Okay. Um, okay, I'm not gonna lie. My fictional character knowledge is like terrible. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I read non-fiction almost exclusively yeah, by virtue of my work. Okay, let's scrap that one. <laughs> um, okay, let's go for twenty to forty. These yeah. questions are crazy. Okay, well, forty-three is my favorite number, so you've ruined my day now. So Sorry. Let's go. Um, let's go. Uh, Thirty-three. Okay, <laughs> you might have just given it away. Actually, what's your favorite guilt? pleasure tv show or movie not gossip girl oh uh, you know i was talking to some real estate people gossip girl it was like maybe 12 years ago and i'm really embarrassed to say it so like my completely switch off show is modern family um i my wife hates that show because she's seen every episode like 30 times that's my like i can sleep during it i can just completely zone out zonk out um, but aside from that, um, linked to the real estate and construction world, there's a show um, based in Australia, funny enough, but I think it's on Netflix called Lux Listings. I actually know one of the agents on that show. We did business together back in Australia. Nice. Um, but uh, the absolute um, nonsense of that, <laughs> of that show is, uh, is kind of uh, relaxing. And, and it reminds me of the scenery. I used to live in the eastern suburbs of Sydney where the show is based. That's where I was before I came over to London. So um, so it kind of gives me a little bit of association with with home as well, at least for adult life. Okay, excellent. Okay, Luke, last question then. Where can people find out more about you? Yeah, so I guess the first port of call for sure um, to check out our work is uh, is to go to Pi Labs. So that's P for Papa, I for India, or Property Innovation. 
Uh, labs is like in this. laboratories. Yes, if you can see. The, uh, what? Wrong camera. Wrong camera. Dot <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, VC for venture capital slash insights. So pylabs.vc slash insights. That's got a lot of our work there. Um, you know, you can download our reports complimentary and uh, and you have a lot of our shorter form stuff there as well. Our medium articles every week, we're pushing out, you know, 500 to 1,000 word medium articles. So, you know, we're, I've been told from a uh, real estate publication, we are the... Um, we publish the most content on innovation in the built world uh, on the planet. So that's pretty hectic. That's um, pretty good. So yeah, check us out if you want to see some of that work. And you've got your own website, Luke Graham. LukeGraham.com, yeah, if you want to see all the research summarized. Um, so PyLabs, pre-PyLabs, the work at Oxford, those sorts of things as well. So Luke Graham, just the way you spell my name, .com, uh, essentially, yeah, summary of all the work there. It's got the podcast episodes there as well. And yeah. Yeah, nice. Okay. All right, Luke, thank you very much. My pleasure. What, what fun. <laughs> cool. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Bricks and Bytes podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate it, and we'll catch you in the next episode.